0: It's really good to see you this morning in the sort of the middle of the Christmas season. Technically, today is actually the 10th day of Christmas, and I can't remember if we should be celebrating with maids a-milking or lords a-leaping, but I'm glad that you chose to celebrate that today by being here together in God's house to study and worship and spend time shipping with each other. Um, the passage that we are going to look at today I think is one of the most Christmassy passages of the Bible. In fact, I think it may be the most Christmas-centered passage that I can think of. But as Pastor Joshua mentioned this morning, you hear no mention in the passage we're going to read today of Mary, Joseph, and in shepherds, wise men, angels, None of the typical uh, Christmas-centered characters will be mentioned in the passage that we are going to read today, but everything in John 1 is focused on the central point that we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, that God came to be with us in the person of Jesus Christ, to live with us, to do life like us and with us, to redeem us. And that's what we're going to explore today. So I invite you to open up to John 1. We are going to look at verses 10 through 18 today. As I was preparing, though, I felt like you you needed to hear the the whole fullness of this part of John. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, and we're going to focus as we talk and teach on 10 through 18. So um, you can follow along in in your copy of the Bible or the pew Bible in front of you, or you can simply listen along as I read John 1, 1 through 18. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He comes after me, has surpassed me, because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace, We have all received one blessing after another, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, this passage is sort of like, a prologue for the Gospel of John. The first 18 verses of this passage set the tone and really give the theme for what the entire book of John will address. That in the beginning was the Word, and that the Word, existing from before all time, was responsible for creation and space and time itself, came to earth to be a part of the very creation That he had made. And we'll see from the very beginning, there's sort of a paradoxical nature of Christ coming to earth. Now, a paradox is sort of like a contradiction. It's an instance where things that don't really seem to go together really do go together. We have in this passage, first, a paradox of recognition or of non recognition. The world that was created through God, made by the triune God with his very breath, this world did not understand him. And when he came into the world wearing flesh and skin and bones and tears and sweat, the world that should have known him knew him not. The creation did not recognize the creator. Verses 10 and 11 make it Heartbreakingly clear that though the Word, this triune God, had created the world, the world did not accept him or even recognize him. Verse 11 even says that he came to that which was his own. And that's thought by most scholars to refer to Jesus coming as a Jew to the people of Israel first. They'd been prepared for a Messiah. They'd been prepped. For a Messiah, yet they did not receive Christ as the Messiah. But not everyone, not everyone rejected Christ. The beauty of another paradox that we see in this passage is noted in verse 12. A paradox of reception, or receiving. Some really received him. Some really believed in him, and to those, verse 12 says that those who received Christ, those who believed he was, who he said he was, those who believed in him were given the right, the privilege, to become children of God. Some rejected, but some believed and trusted and began a glorious journey of becoming children of God. John tells us in this part of the passage that believing puts you in a state of childhood. Believing puts you at the beginning, the beginning of a journey with God, a state that doesn't require or rely on human will or human initiative, but that is completely God-driven. You know, the past two weeks, my family's been doing a lot of traveling over Christmas. We were driving recently with our GPS, and some of you may have GPS systems in your car, or on your phone, and certain, we were heading to a place, and the GPS kept telling us to take this certain road toward the road that we were aiming to go to. A few minutes later, we're still driving down the highway, and the GPS says to continue toward this certain road. Then we're told to take another exit toward this road. Then another exit toward this road. And at one point, Craig looked at me and said, are we ever going to get to this road? We want to arrive very often in life. We want to arrive. We, we don't want to be heading there. We want to be there. We want to be at this point in our life and with this kind of family or this kind of job or this position. We want to be there. But the spiritual life is about the journey of getting there. It's about the process of becoming. Becoming more like Christ and becoming more the person that God has created us to be. We like the fast track, the instant access, or the immediate gratification of arriving. But even John, in this incredible little verse, reminds us that upon our belief, we don't gain instant super spiritual status. We become part of a family of God, and we get to begin a journey of figuring out and becoming who God created us from the beginning. Believing starts a beginning of becoming. Believing starts a beginning of becoming. Henry Nouwen has a book called Life of the Beloved, and he talks about this process of becoming a child of God, that though we are, we are we're stated, we are made children of God, we also have to become and live into that definition of who we are. He says that many of us keep running around in large or small circles, always looking for something or something to be able to convince us of our belovedness. When what is true is that God has decided to call us beloved. And it is my job to live into that. Becoming a child of God means we get to experience the loving nature of God our Father. We get ultimate rest from our work in His peace and in His easy yoke. We get continued guidance through the Holy Spirit and continued and unrestricted access through prayer. But isn't it the entirety of our Christian life to learn to live into these things? Becoming children of God means that we engage in this process of following Christ. These verses tell us that we really have a choice of which side of the paradox we're going to fall on. We can reject and not recognize and not be mentioned again like the first few verses mention, Or we can receive and enter into a relationship that is full of possibility and promises that are made good by God, who created us from the very beginning, we get to become a child of God. We get to grow into that and learn what that means to to us, to live freely and in the carefree nature that is so very childlike. The very word become makes you think of something that is changing and shaping and growing. And we get to become simply by believing and receiving. So the word existed, the word came, some rejected, and some believed. But how did this really happen? Let's look at verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh. And made his dwelling, or some versions say, pitched his tents among us. And now we have seen his glory. You know, the Greek word for dwelling um, in this passage is skino, which is the same root as the word in the Old Testament in um, Exodus 37 for tabernacle, skinos. So it's really a better translation of this passage to say, that the word became flesh and pitched his tents, or tabernacles, right in the middle of us. Now, just like the word tabernacle probably rings a bell for some of you, for the Jewish readers of John's day, that word would have made a lot of sense to them. Thinking back to the days of Moses when God promised his presence with Moses as he led the Israelites to freedom from captivity in Pharaoh, or from Pharaoh. God's presence was there and dwelt in a tabernacle, guiding with clouds by day and with fire by night. His presence was there, but even Moses could only see a shadow or a very small glimpse. Of God's presence. Yet here in this passage, we go from a lofty tabernacle that was there but still separated to a tent dwelling right in the middle of us. God could now be touched and talked to and experienced through the person of Jesus Christ. And we see such another beautiful paradox. This glory, this presence of God that is coming to live among us, not to rest in a tabernacle close by but still far off, God was coming to build up his tent intimately right in the middle of our campground, to be with us. And to live with us and to limit himself in the same human limitations that we have of needing food and sleep and rest. He came to be with us in the middle of our lives, not just for the pretty parts, but for the really messed up parts too. Because if you live in a tent with someone or near someone, you can't hide anything. You can try, but it really isn't possible. It's all out in the open, and it's all exposed and vulnerable, and that is scary as can be, but it's also okay. Because God came down in the person of Christ to be in the middle of every bit of it. God came down in the person of Christ to be and dwell in the pretty, and in the pretty messed up. God came to dwell in the corners and the cobwebs in the boxes in the back of the attic that you have forgotten about or the top of the closet that you haven't opened in years. In the photos that you don't choose to put on social media. Some of the photos you even wish you hadn't taken or you just delete. God came to, to put up his tent in the car when you're angry and driving too fast when you're yelling at your kids or your spouse. God came to dwell in the basements, the basement of our houses, the basement of our hearts, when we've spent too long tossing things down the stairs and haven't stopped long enough to pick stuff up. God came to put his tent right next to you when you're spending money that you don't have or when you're looking at things on the computer that you know you shouldn't be. God came to dwell with us when we once again choose the sin that we said we would stop again and again and again. The Word became flesh and lived with us, dwelled with us in the ugly and in the picturesque, in the gorgeous and in the gory. He came to live in the house emptied by grief or by loss in the bed that is cold with absence, the mind that's cluttered with anxiety or stress or depression. God came to dwell and to live in all of these areas that we try to shut him out of. In fact, whatever tent, whatever place, whether literal or figurative, that you may be thinking about right now that is off-limits to yourself, Or to others, and especially to God, is exactly where Christ came to dwell. Not just to visit on occasion when we've cleaned it all up, but to dwell, to live and breathe and do life in this place, this place that we try to hide. Now, we don't do a great job at Christmas of making this point. We tend to focus only on the the precious moments version of the incarnation, highlighting the nativity scenes with the cutest, perfect faces. We like to clean it up. We like to make baby Jesus sleep through the night at birth. We like to polish up all of the characters of the nativity. We try to make it not the scandalous entry into the world that it really was. And doing this, I think we've made Christ, the coming of Christ, something that it never was designed to be. We've made it a perfect scene and thus begin to think that that's too perfect for us to really, really relate to. I'm not good enough for that. I'm not ready for that. We've allowed Christ to come only where we want him, to the pretty parts of us that we've cleaned up and are presenting before him. And we've shut him out of all the ugly because we think he can't handle it. The ugly is exactly what Christ came for. But the ugly is exactly what we try to hide from each other, from God, and from ourselves. When I was a... It's my last year in divinity school, and I was in a class that focused on missions and had begun working in a church at that point, and just fell in love with missions, and have been on numerous mission trips in my time as a youth minister and, and church staff and college intern. Um, this class in particular was planning a trip to the Ukraine over Christmas break, and. Not everyone in our class was going, but go is sort of my middle name. So I had my name on the list. I wanted to go from the very beginning. In fact, I signed up before I even talked to Craig about that I wanted to go. We'd been married two or three years at the time, and truth is it was a terrible idea for me to be gone at this point. We had just gotten married and had no money. I was working part-time as an intern, Graduate school had not been kind to us or our marriage. We had issues that we had ignored for a while and thrown in the basement and thrown in the basement and thrown in the basement. I did not need to be leaving the country for a few weeks. But I so wanted to go. I had already sent off and had the Ukraine visa in my passport. I was ready to go. But as it came to be, I realized that Where God wanted me was home over Christmas break that year, not in the Ukraine. What a sting to my ego. What a sting to tell my class. It was an unspoken prayer request that had gotten blurted out. I was embarrassed and ashamed that I couldn't go but more embarrassed about why. I needed to work on me and my marriage. How embarrassing. God used that time to bring needed healing to us and to me and begin to break apart parts of me that needed to be destroyed. It was painful and it was beautiful because God was working in the middle of a pretty ugly time in my life. We don't want to risk being real with God and sometimes even with ourselves, and especially not others. We stay behind these false facades and hide what's really messy, what's really needy, and what really needs God to come and clean up. And those are the exact places that God's glory reigns. See, in these verses in John, we are given the theological reasoning behind Jesus coming to earth in every other christmas story we have the the how and the when and the where but in john 1 we have the why why did he do it he came because the ugliness of our sin and separation was unbearable and needed redemption the truth is that god had been involved in our redemption and our freedom from the beginning of time God has been all about freeing us through the whole of the Bible. And this is made full and complete through Jesus Christ. John goes on to say in verses 16 and 17 that original law was given through Moses, but through Jesus we've received the fullness of grace and truth. That from Christ we've received grace on top of grace, or grace replaced by even more grace depending on what translation you're reading. Because it was by grace that God related to Moses through the Old Testament. It was by grace that God chose to dwell in the tabernacle and be close to his people Israel. It was grace that God led the Israelites into the Promised Land, and it was grace that God gave them rules through the Ten Commandments so that they could live together but it was an even more fullness of that grace. It was the the ultimate realization of that grace to have the person of Jesus Christ to live among us. Jesus himself declared or explained perfectly and clearly through his life and through eventually his death that God's heart was and is that people be freed. From slavery to themselves, to others, to things. And to be freed to live now and forever through and with him. When we go backpacking with the youth, um, Craig and I decided early on that we're going to deliberately put people in tents together. Try to put new backpackers with seasoned backpackers to do the best we can to ensure that kids will be both encouraged and pushed and comforted when it's necessary. And inevitably, in the weeks before the backpacking trip, the murmurs sort of start. Who's in your tent? Who's in your tent? You have so-and-so? Oh, wow, you're going to have an awesome time. Who's in your tent? Oh, man, they snore. Put your earplugs in. You can sort of tell a little bit about your trip by who's in your tent. You might be able to figure out if you're sleeping beside a sleep talker, someone who never sleeps, a snorer, or someone who's way too energetic for you in the morning. Let me ask you this question. Who's in your tent? What would it look like for you to let Christ dwell in the tent that is your life? And what could it look like to let others see God at work there? What place in your life needs Christ to dwell? And are you willing to allow it? Christ came to dwell, to set up camp, and to live in every part of us. And that involves us recognizing who he is and being vulnerable enough to receive him. So who is in your tent, and what shape is that tent in anyway? Are you willing to be vulnerable and to allow Christ's presence there? You may wish to use this time as we begin to move toward our time of response to spend some time at the prayer stations at the back of of the sanctuary, And I invite you to use the prayer cards that are available in the pews or in the prayer stations and allow us, allow your staff ministers to come alongside you and pray with you for your needs. Maybe God is calling you to open yourself up in some way, and this might be the first step. You're invited to pray with a minister, to light a candle, or maybe you just need to simply sit and reflect and sing, but I encourage you to respond to God's leading in the way that God is encouraging you to do so this morning. Who is in your tent? Let's stand and sing. Our hymn of response is number 292. We'll be singing from the hymnals.